0: You know, I'm sure every family has a story similar to this. Uh, this is, so our story is about, I think, I don't know how old my kids were. I don't even remember if we had three or two. No, we had three because it was in a minivan that this occurred. So uh, we had a potluck, an evening potluck at our church, and it was winter. And so it was dark very early. And, you know, you It's hard sometimes with multiple children to pay attention to all of them at the same time. But anyway, we got into the potluck, got things set up. We're hanging out, having a good time, just talking to people. Um, We forgot something in the car, so Amy asked me to go back out and get that. And so it was like a serving spoon or something. And so I went back out to the car. I remember that it was pitch black out. We had one of those fancy cars that a button would open the sliding door on the back. And so I pushed that button and that door slid open and the dome light slowly came up on my son strapped in his car seat who had screamed himself hoarse out of terror Because we had completely forgotten him. Totally left him in that van, shut the door, lights went out, sitting in a dark, cold parking lot alone. And at least in his little mind, probably forever. And I just, I remember just, just apologizing, over and over and over to this child who I knew would never remember this, or at least I prayed would never remember this. <laughs> but these things, you know, these kinds of things, they happen to us. And, 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 and later, they're, they're fun to tell the stories about, sort of. Um, you know, as I mentioned last week, there are not very many accounts of Jesus' childhood in Scripture. Uh, And by not very many, I mean there are two. Uh, So there's the visit of the Magi that happens somewhere between seven weeks old and just under two years old. Uh, And if you are curious as to why we know that that's the time frame, again, I'd love to explain that to you. Uh, But in that one, we don't really learn much about Jesus. He's too young to really Say anything to us, or be all that uh, interesting. Um, no offense to anyone under two here, but um, we learn about like what our attitude toward Jesus ought to be, and we we learn about who Jesus is from that passage, but not much about like his like we don 't learn it from him. Uh, the only other passage is this one today uh, when Jesus is twelve years old, so we jump from about 2 to 12 years old, and we don't really have any other stories from his childhood. Now, that isn't to say that we haven't had people in the church who have been more than happy to speculate and come up with stories about Jesus' uh, childhood. Uh, the most recent, I'd say, would be uh, Anne Rice, the author, which I know you're like the vampire author. Yeah, the very one. Uh, she wrote a book about Jesus's twelve years, first 12 years uh, just sort of speculating on his time in Egypt to through this uh, moment in the temple. Uh, but she wasn't the first by a long shot. Uh, in fact, millennia before her, uh, stories were being written about Jesus in false gospel accounts. Uh, some of them are at least amusing. Uh, at one point, Jesus was... Uh, playing in the dirt, and he made like a little, uh, little contraption to hold some water. And then with the water, he made 12 little sparrows out of clay. And then a boy came over and kicked his little cistern and broke it. And Jesus looked at him and said, you will wither up and die. And the little boy withered up and died. The boy's father happened to be the high priest. Who then scolded Jesus, not for the death of his son, but because he was making toys out of clay on the Sabbath. And so Jesus said, Fly, sparrows, and they flew away. It, it touches the heart, doesn't it? Another time, a boy was making fun of Jesus, and again, he told the boy to die, and he died. And the parents complained to Mary and Joseph. And when Mary and Joseph scolded Jesus about it, he kicked the dead boy in the back. And the dead boy came back to life. <laughs> There's stories about Jesus with his teachers. There's stories about Jesus with, us, with his friends. There's one story where Jesus' younger half-brother James is bit by a viper and Jesus heals him. Only after he's asked to heal him by uh, Mary and Joseph. Like these stories, most of them, they have like one thing in common. Jesus is a precocious, irreverent brat who needs to be corrected constantly by outsiders or by his parents. There's nothing in these stories that make you sit up and pay attention and think there's something different about him. In fact, they are exactly what you would expect a young boy who discovers he has, un, um, like, incomparable powers. This is exactly what you expect a little boy to do with those powers. Like, killing his sister, bringing her back to life. Killing her again, bringing her back to life. Just like, I dare you. I dare you. Touch my mitt one more time. I dare you. I can do this all day. I can do this all day. Where's your sister? She's taking a nap. <laughs> That's, that's Jesus? That's the that's that's and the thing is, so then you read Luke's account and you realize, okay, so that's there's something slightly different in this account. There's something a little more believable about if God had become a child, what would that child have been like? And this story, I love this because. Mary and Joseph aren't the heroes in this story, which makes it a little more believable because the only person who would have told this story to anyone would have been Mary. Because if, I mean, if church history is correct, that uh, Joseph likely died uh, sometime before Jesus' three-year ministry began, then the only person who would have been sharing these things would have been Mary. And can't you just picture the scene when Mary shared this, like for the first time, maybe they're sitting around a, a, an outdoor fire or maybe they're in the in the house, just kind of relaxing. And uh, and people are talking about some of the things that Jesus did and their experiences and things they saw and and did and and went through with him. And Mary would sit there and listen and she would say, did I um, did I ever tell you about the time that I lost the son of God? For three days. Would you stand with me for the reading of God's word? Now, his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up according to custom. And when the feast was ended, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents did not know it, but supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey. But then they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances. And when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem, searching for him. After three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions And they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. The grass withers, the flowers fade, and yet the word of the Lord remains forever. You may be seated. So our outline's pretty straightforward. Uh, we look at the setting first, uh, look at four surprises in the passage, um, consider whose son Jesus is, and, uh, and understand what true submission looks like. So first, the setting. There were, there were three annual feasts uh, in the Jewish, in, in Israel three annual feasts that were required. They were basically required attendance in the temple if you lived uh, close enough within travel distance of the temple. You were required to come to these feasts. They were uh, the Feast of Passover, uh, the Feast of Pentecost, and the Feast of Booths or of Tabernacles. And so it's interesting that in various Gospels or in the book of Acts, All of these show up at some point. Passover shows up more than others. Uh, It's at the Feast of Passover is when Jesus is crucified, but we see other places where he goes and attends Passover. Uh, The Feast of Booths is mentioned in John when Jesus comes and celebrates the Feast of Booths in Jerusalem. Um, And Pentecost, as we see in Acts 2, Pentecost is another. But these are three times a year that uh, Jerusalem is packed with people who could travel who were close enough to travel. Uh, we've already seen in the first two chapters of Luke that Mary and Joseph were faithful Israelites. Uh, they were obedient. Uh, they worshiped God, not just uh, with their mouths, but with their actions and with their presence. They, uh, they can, these things weren't optional to them. Uh, even living in Nazareth, <clears throat> we're told that Joseph took his family to these feasts every year, as was his custom. So they would all travel. Uh, they wouldn't travel alone. They would travel with other families. Uh, so especially in those times, they're t- you're talking about extended family. And, and, and neighbors. They would all go together, and you would sort of caravan, and it would be this big event of just even the traveling itself would be an event uh, surrounding the, the activity. This particular Passover would actually be significant in Mary and Joseph's family because their oldest son is 12 years old. It's the last year that he'll, by, uh, by custom, he'll be viewed as a child. Uh, so next year, he'll be considered a son of the law, or a bar mitzvah. Uh, He will be 13 years old and be considered, and he'll have certain responsibilities, adult responsibilities. Now he's treated as a man. Now he gets to go with his dad into the men-only section of the temple. So this year would be a year that they might be taking him aside and showing things and explaining things a little more deeply to him. We understand this. We know this. You do this uh, over at Communion. Like when you have kids who aren't yet old enough to take communion, you have opportunities, you know, either that morning or that Saturday evening and explaining, hey, tomorrow's communion. These are the things that are going to happen. These are the things you're going to see. Or even during communion, you know, when you've got your stuff and you're sitting and you can whisper with your kids while other people get the elements and say, this is what's going on. This is what we're doing. This is what you can expect to happen Uh, There was one time we were taking communion and Jacob was sitting on my lap and I was holding the the elements and he's looking at it and he whispers to me, he says, are those really the body and blood of Jesus? And so I just kind of smiled and I said, well, yes, they really are, but they are not physically. And one day I'll explain that mystery to you as best I can. Uh. But there are opportunities to explain these things here. Jesus is 12 years old, and so it's a great, it's a special opportunity for them. From Nazareth to Jerusalem is about 85 miles. So this isn't like a one day event. It's not like, oh, let's walk to Jerusalem. We could probably be home by supper time. No, this is a huge event. 85 miles, by the way, if you walk from Stafford to Baltimore. You will walk 85 miles. So that's the path, that's the trek they took three times a year in faithfulness, in obedience to God's law. They walked this every year. You know, these things sort of help us understand maybe the possibilities of how one might not realize your child isn't with you when you start walking home from Jerusalem. For example, as happens typically, even in these caravans, uh, the women and the children would eventually end up congregating together as they walked, and the men would all walk together. Whether this was out of custom or just something that happens, we know that happens. Every time you have a gathering at your house and you invite married couples and they come to hang out, don't we know that eventually you're going to have two groups of people. There's going to be a group of men over here talking and laughing and a group of women over here talking and laughing. And even when you try to, like, break that up, even when you're like, oh, well, let's play a game or something, someone's always going to say, okay, let's play guys against girls. Uh, So, like, it's just a natural thing. It's not an abnormal thing. And so if that were to happen, perhaps Mary, and, and she's got these younger kids now that she's dealing with, And she doesn't see Jesus with her, but Jesus is 12 years old. Isn't that wonderful? Joseph has taken Jesus to walk with the men. I am so happy. Joseph, oh, what a great dad that he would do that. And so she doesn't really think much about it. And Joseph doesn't think anything about it. (laughs) Of course Jesus isn't with me. Of course Jesus is with his mother. They wouldn't even have come up until you settle down for the first night and people are gathering, families are getting back together and you're deciding, oh, who's going to cook what? How are we doing this? And then Joseph walks in and, and Mary would say to him, is Jesus with you? And Joseph would very naturally say, why would Jesus be with me? And so we get it. It's human. It's normal. This is a normal thing going on here. All we get to do is speculate now. Did they spend a restless night there? Just kind of hoping he would show up. Just kind of thinking, well, maybe he's with, maybe he's with this uncle. Maybe he's with, you know, I don't know. Who would he be with? I don't know. Maybe he's killing a kid and bringing him back to life. No, they wouldn't think that because that didn't happen. Or did they turn around right then and leave the caravan, the safety of the caravan, and go all the way back? You know, we're told they looked for three days. So it's either inclusive counting, and many writers explain. So a day of travel out, a day of travel back, a day of looking for Jesus. Or it could be they traveled, they traveled, they searched three days for Jesus. It really doesn't matter, does it? It's still at least three days that you lost your kid. Three days. Three days. And they're searching all over Jerusalem for him. Now I'm going to take a little break. I think we have time for this because I just think this is a little cool. And you can tell me if you think it's cool or not, but... So, let me set the picture for you. It's Passover. Jesus and a crowd of people have gone to Jerusalem to celebrate Passover. And three days after Passover, Mary is searching desperately for Jesus and can't find him. And when she finds him, Jesus is surprised that she didn't know where to look for him. This is what happens at the tail end of the introduction to Luke. Now, let me just give you a spoiler. In Luke 24, Jesus is going to go to Passover, go to Jerusalem to celebrate Passover with a crowd. And three days after Passover, Mary's going to be looking for him. And she'll be looking in the wrong place. And the angel that meets her, is going to be surprised that she would be looking there. He'll say, well, why are you looking for the living among the dead? He's not here. He's, he's risen, like he said. I Listen, the Holy Spirit inspired Scripture and inspired Scripture through authors who had style and knew how to write and knew how to tell a story. And isn't that just like it, it's a little like hair raising. It's like it's goose to read that and see this Passover three days. We've lost Jesus. We don't know where to find him. And when they do finally find him, he's like, w- why would you not know where to find me? <laughs> you should have known exactly where to find me. Anyway, that's it. Freebie. Freebies over. Uh, So, um, they do finally find him. He's in the temple. He's not just in the temple. He's in the temple with teachers. So, at these feasts... The custom would be in Jerusalem. Anyone who was interested, after the feast was over, teachers would have little gatherings. You could stick around for sort of an after-feast talk, answer questions, questions about the history of Israel, questions about theology, questions about just the state of Israel in general. And here is Jesus at one of these conversation moments, this 12-year-old boy, and he's listening and asking questions and they're amazed because he's like making connections that many adults don't even make. And they're, they are amazed. His parents, when they finally find him, are astonished. But those are not the first of the four surprises. The first surprise is for you and me when we read verse 43 and realize the only action being mentioned in all of this setup is Jesus' action. We're told Jesus remained in Jerusalem. Jesus stayed in Jerusalem. His parents left, but Jesus stayed. It isn't a neglectful, preoccupied parent mistake. It isn't an ADD distracted boy who got lost. There's an intentionality behind what Jesus did. He stayed in the temple on purpose for the reason of going and receiving instruction and talking with these teachers. The second surprise, we join with the teachers who are amazed at Jesus. It says they were amazed. He's listening, he's asking questions, but he's also showing that he understands, he's putting things together. And maybe you're not amazed. Maybe you're not surprised by this. Maybe you're thinking, well, it's Jesus. He had all the answers. He had like a cheat sheet in his pocket from the day he was born. But remember from Sunday school last week, uh, Jesus has two natures, like truly and perfectly. He is a man. He is a human 12-year-old boy. And he is God. And these two natures are true and exist in Jesus. As we, as we were talking, as pointed out in the, the Council of Chalcedon, they exist without mixture and without confusion, but without separation or division. But that means that Jesus is truly 12 years old and learning. The only difference between Jesus 12 years old and you and me 12 years old is that his learning was never infected or affected by sin. So his learning was Always learning without sin. And so his understanding was understanding without sin. So imagine learning things at 12 years old and having no effect of sin on what you're learning or how you're learning or on your attitude toward learning. There'd be no boredom. There'd be no hatred. There'd be no, no desire to just do anything but learn something else again. It would be just pure understanding and application and realizing and making connections because it all would make sense. I mean, there are moments that that, like, we get maybe not sinless learning, but there are times that when you learn something like, even your teachers are a little surprised that you picked up on that so well. I mean, this isn't like this is this is more to say. Look, when I was uh, when I was in Sunday school, I was no Jesus. Um, The closest thing I got to being even looking like Jesus was in sixth grade Sunday school. I sat next to the Sunday school teacher. Uh, on purpose, like chose that seat, wanted to sit next to her. We sat at a table. Uh, amy 's shaking her head right now because she thinks I did that because the teacher always brought cookies, and she always passed them in the same direction, and so the cookies always ended to the what 's that to the left of the teacher, which by some strange coincidence is the seat I chose every Sunday and so after the cookies went around i would sit there and eat all of the rest of the cookies through the rest of sunday school and so but that's i feel like that's pretty brilliant i feel like that's sinless application of knowledge but others don't others think that was selfish and blah 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 anyway uh, but that's to give you an idea of the kind of person i was in junior high and even high school and i remember in a high school sunday school class it just so happened that The week before this Sunday school class, my youth pastor had given me a book about uh, about the rich young ruler. And I had read that book and it was just a little short book and I was just interested in it. And um, and then the Sunday school teacher was teaching on the rich young ruler. And so and so I'm just sitting there slouching like I always did. And he said, so the so Jesus says to the rich young ruler, why do you call me good? There's no one good but God alone. Why did Jesus do that? I mean if Jesus is God why correct him and I just remember like no one was saying anything I didn't even raise my hand I'm just stayed slouching and I remember what I read about it and so I said it and I just I answered the question and I kid you not that teacher did at least a three slow blink stare at me and he just said well yeah yes that That's right. And for me, it wasn't because I was so super smart all of a sudden. It was just because I happened to read the book the day before. And so, but Jesus, that's what he got. He's asking questions. And the teachers are like, why? Why do you even know to ask a question like that? And then like his, he was even giving answers and he's, and he's surprising them all. We should be, it's okay to be surprised, amazed even at Jesus. Unfortunately, his parents aren't amazed, they're astonished. It's that whole embarrassment mixed with relief that turns immediately to anger. Like when you do lose your kid, there's that embarrassment and fear factor that you totally forget when you find the kid. Because now you realize, oh, you're not losing it, missing an arm. Oh, well, now you will wish you had been. <laughs> and like the, the irate rage that rises so quickly in a parent when you find your lost child and the reality is, and uh, this is probably going to ruin it for some of you kids, or maybe you parents don't want them to know this, that's because we don't know how to be that angry at ourselves. We, like, we need someone to feel the wrath, and we just can't yell at ourselves in public. That's weird. Because reality, in that situation, lost kid, missing from an adult. Who's the adult? Who had the responsibility of keeping an eye on the kid? Not the kid. It was the adult's responsibility. We just hate how bad we are at this, and we wish you would be better at being a kid. And that's the parents that they walk in. They're astonished, but they're not, they're not listening in their Son, why have you treated us so? I mean, every mother in here wants to say this to her son. Why have you treated us so? look. Your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. I always wonder what Joseph's doing at this moment. If he's like behind her and he's like, three days. That's so cool. (laughs) Where where did you sleep? I'm sorry. I mean, yes, son, we are. (laughs) But yet she's. And she's upset, and you and I, we think she has a right to be upset. This is totally normal. Yes, it's normal, but is she right? Because it brings us to the fourth surprise. Jesus is surprised that Mary and Joseph are astonished. Jesus says, why were you looking for me? Didn't, didn't you know that I must be in my father's house? So we're going to come back to that, but real quick, another little quick side turn. If you are at work and your boss is yelling at you for something you did, but you didn't do it, who is wrong in that situation? You can answer. The boss. Yeah. If you have a friend who is angry at you for something that you did, but you didn't do that, Who's wrong in that situation? Your friend. If Jesus isn't wrong, like ever, who's wrong in this situation? Yeah, Mary and Joseph. So I'm just going to throw this out there. I know this isn't the point of the passage. Mary, Mary was parenting out of fear rather than out of faith. Mary had forgotten some pretty key promises God had made to her. I mean, an angel told her, this boy will be the son of the Most High. He will sit on his father on David's throne forever. She learned from the shepherds. An angel came and told us that a Savior, the Messiah, the Lord, has been born. And it's this child of yours. These things she had been told. These things she knew, but she'd forgotten. If the Son of the Most High has been born, do you think three days of misplacing him is really going to throw things off? Do you, parents, do you sometimes parent out of fear instead of faith? I know I do. Because we forget the promises God has made. Even as as Bob and I were praying this morning, uh, I was reminded, like, in his prayer, he just said, Thank you, God, that you thank you, God, that you love our children more than we do. And what a great promise that is when you are just at your wit's end. All right, so back to Jesus, back to the temple. Third point. Whose son? Here's Jesus, 12 years old. At 12 years old, Jesus has an understanding of who he is. And yes, is it possible that some of that understanding is because he is God incarnate? Yes. Some of that understanding, though, is because he has been taught Scripture. And he's able to see and put together what Scripture says about who he is. I mean, this is how we know who Jesus is, because of Scripture. We know who Jesus is because of what Scripture tells us. And he tells us in Luke, like, all of the Old Testament is pointing to me. So this means that at 12 years old, he's receiving instruction about the Old Testament and realizing, putting these things together and understanding and growing in his understanding of who he is and who he is in relationship to God in heaven, he says Didn't you know that I must be in my father's house? Don't skip too quickly over the pronoun. My father's house. Jesus has an understanding that he has a very unique relationship with Yahweh, with God, the creator of heaven and earth. This is how one writer puts it. My father's house. The learned doctors knew the Old Testament inside and out. In all the long biblical record, not even Moses who had built the tabernacle, not David who had longed to build the temple, nor Solomon who actually built it, no prophet, no king, no commoner, not the most exalted of them, had ever referred to the, ta- to the tabernacle or temple as my father's house. This child was conscious of a relationship with God that none had ever conceived of, let alone expressed before. And with that relationship, a compelling devotion, I had to be in my father's house. Jesus has a knowledge of who he is. And that knowledge compels him to be in his father's house. Learning, asking, growing in in wisdom, And in favor with God and with man. And what is the result of his understanding of who he is and whose child he is? The result is perfect submission. Not just perfect submission to God, but perfect submission to his parents. Jesus submits perfectly to his perfect father in heaven, which means he can trust his father in heaven and even submit perfectly to his imperfect parents on earth. We're told Jesus went home to Nazareth and was submissive to Mary and Joseph. How many of us measure how submissive we need to be based on how perfect is the person I'm submitting to. I like guess teenagers, we decide pretty early on, don't you, that uh, I don't have to listen to my parents because they're idiots. I mean, not that any of you teenagers would say that. That's only sinful. When I was a teenager, we said things like that. Uh, but you start realizing your parents are sinners, and then it's like, oh, I don't have to listen to you anymore because you were wrong. Jesus shows his perfect submission to the Father in heaven by submitting to his imperfect parents on earth. I know that Jesus is not just our example in how to live, but there are times that we ought to be looking at Jesus' life and saying, I should be striving for that. A submission, an obedience. To others, even as I'm certain they're not perfect. And so, this ends the opening introduction of, to Jesus in the book of Luke. These first two chapters, their introduction, they're, they set the stage, they, they manage our expectations, give us some hints and some clues, some tastes of what we're going to learn about Jesus. You know, before he was born, I don't know if you noticed this, before he was born, three people spoke about Jesus told us something about him. Uh, The angel, Elizabeth and Zechariah, all in chapter 1. So the angel tells Mary he'll be the son of the Most High. He'll sit on his father David's throne forever. Elizabeth says to Mary, why should I be blessed to have the, why is the mother of my Lord visiting me? Here's this unborn child that Elizabeth is saying, that is my Lord, that is my master that is not even born yet. Zechariah tells us again before he's even born that the, this child, he is the horn of salvation. He's from the house of David. He's going to save us from our enemies. He's, he's the fulfillment of the holy covenant. The covenant, the, the covenant that's, that began in the garden was expressed to, to Adam And to Abraham, this this covenant, this promise, here is the fulfillment of the Holy Covenant, this unborn child. And then in chapter 2, three people tell us about this child who's been born. Again, an angel, and then a prophet, and then here Christ himself. In verse 11, an angel tells us this is the Savior, the Christ, the Lord. Simeon, in in verses 29 to 32, tells us this one is God's salvation who is born. He is a light to the Gentiles. And now here Jesus tells us, I had to be in my father's house. He is the Son of God, the Son of God and the Savior of sinners. This is Jesus. And sometimes the things that he's going to do and going to say will will astonish us. But we need to move from astonishment to amazement. We need to be amazed at what Jesus has come to do to save us from our sins. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you are the Son of God and Savior of sinners. We ask that you would help us to live our lives, whether parenting or working, whether as adults or as children, as students, that we would live our lives out of faith and not out of fear. That we would look for you and see you in these pages of Scripture and in our lives. I pray that we would be obedient to you in such a way that it could just be described as even just, it's our custom to worship you and obey you. God, I pray that we would be submissive to you, our Father, and in our submission to you, We would trust you even in difficult situations and times when you are calling us to submission. I pray that you would be glorified in our hearts, in our lives, and in our homes. In Jesus' name, amen.